back. If this is your first time, I certainly hope it is not your last time. And if this is your first time joining us, you could not have chosen a better time because today you're going to learn something important about us and why we do what we do the way we do it. As you know, the pandemic has caused a bit of an upheaval in our lives and in our church. Every church had a decision to make. Should we close? When should we close? And then when should we open? And, and how should we open? And as you might imagine, the decisions every local church has made, whether to open early or stay closed longer, or even to remain closed for the rest of the year, is always met with varying reactions. So I want to spend a few minutes today talking about why we've chosen our particular path of staying closed, perhaps longer than most churches, and why we feel now is the time to open. And not as a defense, but because our decision is actually connected to something that's uh, kind of central to the Christian faith. And that's why it's important in normal times. And, and it may seem, uh, or may rather not seem all that relevant, uh, maybe now. For, for example, if you've never had a flat tire in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, chances are you probably have not dropped by a dealership or looked up a YouTube video prior to this that explains how to change your tire of your particular vehicle. Not because it's not important, but because it hasn't been relevant until now. So generally speaking, we learn on the needs-to-know basis. So today, here's something we need to know, and here's something specifically we need to know about our faith that has been highlighted by recent events in our culture. So I, I want to discuss our church's response to the pandemic as an illustration of a larger point, a point about uh, which Jesus is crystal clear, a point that should inform and influence the posture of every local church at all times, but especially in times like these. Now, in our current climate, there are three dynamics that have merged to create really a kind of perfect storm of confusion as it relates to something Jesus taught and modeled. The first of these things is everything is politicized. Everything. And that's not new for you, right? Everyone knows that. There are no neutral topics anymore, right? I, I mean, you know, school opening has been politicized. Masks, protests, the virus, and my favorite, Anthony Fauci. I mean, three or four months ago, Republicans loved him, and now Democrat, Democrats claim him, and a lot of Republicans aren't sure they can trust him anymore. So again, there are no neutral topics. Apparently, there aren't even any neutral people. The second dynamic that kind of adds to the confusion is uh, cancel culture. I mean, if you say one thing I don't like, or if you say one thing I disagree with, I discount everything you've ever said. I discount everything you've ever accomplished in your life. Now, this isn't new. We just haven't had a phrase that kind of captures this unfortunate dynamic. That's the first two. But, but there's a third element to this kind of perfect storm. And this third element has been around a long time, but it raises its divisive head even higher during political seasons. And it's the one that I want to directly address because it's one that intersects specifically with our faith. It's actually a version of Christianity. And it's a version of Christianity that I have worked very hard to help us avoid. And it goes by a lot of names, but I'm going to refer to it as culture war Christianity. Culture war Christianity is the version of Christianity that is consumed with winning. The version that sees itself perpetually under attack and consequently feels the need to attack back. It requires an enemy for sustainability. Like some of you, I grew up with this version. And again, I have purposely attempted to lead in such a way that we avoid it at all costs. Because I'm convinced that it is a perversion of our faith. And not only is it a perversion of our faith, but it is a perversion of, of our church. It actually sets the church up to be a tool of politicians rather than the conscience of a nation. And Jesus, I guess, looking into the future, called us, us, the church, to be the conscience of a nation. 
But this version actually kind of defines itself by what it's against, by what it's standing against. A version that sees the church as always under attack by the government and secularism. It actually forces the church into a defensive, defensive posture. It comes across as if it's more concerned with winning than loving. It's fueled by fear, by fear of losing something. And I call it a version of Christianity because it doesn't reflect the first century Jesus version of our faith. Worse, it actually represents the opposite of what Jesus taught and modeled. Now this, I hope, doesn't come as a surprise to anyone, but our church skews conservative. And as far as churches go, that's actually a good thing because liberal or, or hyper-progressive or activist churches often, not always, but often allow an agenda to erode their commitment to the centrality of the gospel. And when I say gospel, what I mean specifically by that is that we have a sin problem, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we have a selfishness problem, that we need a savior, and that Jesus is that savior who literally physically rose from the dead to punctuate his claims about himself and his father. And in many cases, liberal-leaning churches like culture war conservative churches have their own way of recreating and reimagining Jesus in the image of their agenda. Now, once you abandon the divinity of Jesus and our need for a savior, this is so important, you actually abandon the foundation of morality, justice, and the dignity of the individual. And do you know what you're left with? You're left with majority morality, where the majority determines what's right and what's moral. And that is a dangerous place to be as a nation and as a community. Ultimately, do you know who suffers the most? Women and children. So we dare not abandon the claims and the resurrection of Jesus. And theologically speaking, churches who hold a higher view of Scripture and who defend the divinity of Jesus and the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus are considered conservative churches. So we are conservative the the uh, theologically, but we have not and will not embrace the far-right-leaning approach to our faith that is in it to win it. And more on what I mean by that in just a minute. Now, you know this, you can raise a lot of money and sell a lot of books uh, on the far right or the far left, but you cannot, you cannot solve problems there. You can't love people well there, and you won't find Jesus there. And if it's up to me, you won't find us there either. So at this point, you may be asking, Jim, like, where are you getting all this? Are you kind of just making all of this up? And what in the world does this have to do with our decision to delay in-person services for so long? Well, I'm glad you asked. During his earthly ministry, everybody wanted Jesus to take their side, to take a stand against the other side. But Jesus refused. He refused because both sides were fueled by the, a common assumption. And that assumption was simply this. Power and resource are to be leveraged primarily for the benefit of the powerful and the resource. I mean, people on both sides held this assumption that power and resource are to be leveraged for the benefit of the powerful and the resource. And Jesus refused to play their game of tug of war. As I've reminded you on multiple occasions, he was the king who came to reverse the order of things. The Apostle Paul said it best. You remember the Apostle Paul. He has this incredible vantage point of being on the other side of the resurrection. He spent time with Peter. He spent time with James, the brother of Jesus. He spent time with John, the apostle. Paul gets his information from eyewitnesses as they describe what it was like to spend three and a half years with Jesus. And now the Apostle Paul describes for us what they describe to him. Here's how he describes Jesus, your Savior, my Savior. Jesus, who, who being in very nature God, that the people who were closest to the action were absolutely convinced that Jesus was God in a body. 
The Apostle John was convinced that God is love, not because of what he experienced in the world, but because of what he experienced for three years with Jesus, because Jesus was love personified. But Paul continues, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. In other words, and this is disturbing, this, is, <clears throat> this was kind of the differentiator, Jesus did not play to win, or at least the way the first or 21st century people would define them. Jesus played to lose. And I, and I got to be completely honest with you. That doesn't sit well with me. It, it's, it's not very American, is it? We like to win. We are wired to win. But it turns out Jesus was not against winning. It turns out he was playing a completely different game that had completely different rules with a completely different win. Jesus played to lose so that the other team, and that would be me and that would be you, Jesus played to lose so that the other team could win. This is why he never took sides, because neither of the other sides were willing to lose for the sake of the other side. Paul continues, and he says it this way. Rather, again, talking about Jesus, rather he made himself nothing. He made himself a nobody. And nobody on either side, either side of the, those two sides were willing to do that. Everybody wants to be somebody. Everybody wants to make themselves something. Jesus made himself nothing. He refused to attach his name to the, you know, what's in it for us party or the party that insists on winning, the party that fears losing, the party uh, or the, the person who clings to rather than gives away. Paul continues, by taking the very nature of a servant. And what is a servant? A servant is someone who wakes up every single day thinking about how to better serve someone else. Someone who wakes up every single day committed to leveraging themselves and their resources for the benefit of someone else. Now, now this is so important, so please don't miss this. Remember, the Apostle Paul is describing Jesus. If we are Jesus' body, if we are his hands, if we are his feet, this should describe us too. This is why the church always looks more like, like Jesus when we are defending other people's rights rather than our own. The church always looks more like Christ when we are giving away rather than demanding our way. And if that scares you, if that makes you feel like you might lose something, if that makes you feel like you might lose, now you understand why Jesus' disciples refused to accept the fact that he would be arrested, tried, and crucified. I mean, he told them over and over and over, and they just didn't get it. Because if you're arrested, tried, and crucified, you've lost. That's what losers do. He told them over and over again, what was gonna happen? And they just couldn't process it. In fact, as we've discussed before, did you remember they're on their way to Jerusalem? That means, you know, this is Jesus' kind of date with destiny. And the 12 are, are they're still discussing amongst themselves. Who's going to be like number two and number three in his kingdom? Well, once he wins, once he defeats their enemy, once that happens, which one of them will sit on his lap and which one of them will sit on his right? And when he declares himself the winner, which one of them? will wield the most power and the most authority. In fact, it's even worse than that. In Luke chapter 9, Luke describes the incident where they're going from Galilee towards Jerusalem. And they decide to take this kind of shortcut through Samaria. And so as they move into Samaria, Jesus sends a couple of his disciples ahead of them to a Samaritan village to secure lodging for the night. So Jesus and the rest of the guys, you know, they're, they're kind of walking along. They're moving toward the village. And here come these two guys that he sent ahead to secure lodging. They're coming back to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, these people don't want us in their village. 
I mean, Jesus, when they found out that we are Jews and we're on our way to Jerusalem, they don't want us spending the night in their village. And how did the disciples respond after being with Jesus for three and a half years? Here's what they said. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? I mean, just imagine that. Jesus, they, they are so offensive. They're not our friends. They're our enemies. Would you like us to call down fire from heaven to destroy and consume them? Would you like us to leverage our power in such a way that we win? Clearly, they don't know who we are. So Jesus, let's teach them a lesson. Let, let's use our power to win. And if you've read this passage before, you remember what Jesus said. Luke says that he rebuked them. He uses the same term that he uses to describe Jesus when he rebuked demons. This was his way of saying, guys, not in my kingdom. That's not how it works. That's how everybody else does it. But if you aren't willing to lose, if you aren't willing to go to the back of the line, don't even bother getting in my line. I am the king who has come to reverse the order of things. That's not my kingdom. Let's go to Jerusalem, where I'm going to be arrested and killed. And of course, here's what the disciples are thinking. But Jesus, look, wait, wait, wait a minute. If you're arrested and killed, how are we going to win? To which Jesus would have smiled and said, guys, that is how we are going to win. I'm going to lose their game. And in doing so, we will win my game. And so they go to Jerusalem. And the best possible person would suffer the worst possible death to illustrate that even the Son of Man had not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man had not come to win a game of tug of war between the kingdoms of this world. He came to establish a completely different kind of kingdom with a completely different set of values that operate under the assumption that the last would be first and the first would be last. Because in his kingdom, there is no first and there is no last. Finally, they get it. And as they gather for that final Passover, Jesus washes their feet. And then they would stand and they would watch him crucified. And they would hear him forgive men who crucified him. They would listen to him as he promised a criminal paradise. Then after the resurrection, it all came together. This is so important. That that first generation of Christians refused to leverage privilege and power for their own benefit. It was always for the benefit of others. They were not in it to win it for for anything. They they lived selfless lives in Jesus' name. They let go of the old way and they embraced the law of Christ. And as Jesus predicted, neither the gates of Hades nor the legions of Rome could stop them. Jesus, how are you going to build your church if you're arrested and crucified? Guys, that's how I'm going to build my church. The only question is, would you follow me? Would you take up your cross and not your rights, and follow me. Throughout history, when the church has opted for the tools of the kingdoms of this world, the church ends up looking just like this world. And the church ultimately becomes the pawn. The church looks weak, it looks desperate, and it looks fearful. When we, the church, demand our way and defend our rights, not as citizens, that's different, and I'll come to that in a minute, but as the church... Listen, we actually abandon the very thing that sets us apart to begin with. The distinctive of we are not in it to win it for ourselves. We are in it to win it for others. When the church digs in its heels in order to win on behalf of the church, we've already lost. We've surrendered our voice and our influence. We're just another organization with a self-serving agenda. Now, to be clear, as an American citizen, vote for and stand for your rights and your freedom. 
as guaranteed to you by the Constitution of the United States of America. But when we speak and when we act as the body of Christ, it must not be for our benefit, but for the benefit of the community and the people in our communities. If Jesus refused to play the God card, if he refused to exercise his authority and his rights for his own benefit, then neither should we. Political parties by nature are all in it to win it, and we all get that. The church is not, and the church must never be. In my opinion, this is why pastors and churches should never publicly align themselves with anything other than the, the person of Jesus Christ. The minute we do, we abandon our defining virtue, the defining virtue of the kingdom of God. We abandon our commitment to play, to lose, so that others would win. So church, church people, Christians, we are not in it to win it. We are not in it for ourselves. We are followers of Jesus. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Think about this. He humbled himself. He who was the highest became the lowest. He didn't fight for his rights. He didn't demand his way. He submitted himself to evil men by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the world has never been the same. Remember, it was Christianity, not the Republican or the Democratic Party that shaped Western civilization. It was the teaching of Jesus, not our political parties, that laid the groundwork for our modern notions of justice and fairness and dignity for all. So with all of that as a backdrop, here's why we have chosen our current course as a church. It was not what you know what's best for us. Our decision to wait so long to open is not what, what's best for us. The best thing for us, and to be perfectly honest, for me personally, would have been to open up as soon as possible. That would have been a win for us, but that would have been a loss for our community, both in terms of what could happen and in terms of the message it sends. So we said no to us as a way of saying yes to those around us because it's not about us. We did not suspend services so long because of, of government pressure. We're not afraid. We're not bowing to social and cultural or political pressure. We didn't bow our knee to Caesar. Our decision to, to suspend weekend services or, or gatherings was not at all politically motivated. It wasn't fear-based. It wasn't any anti-person or any anti-party. We stated from the very onset of COVID-19, this is how we are choosing to love our neighbors. This is how we are choosing to love our neighborhoods because this is what Jesus commanded us to do. And that's what he did for us. So for those of you who have been hoping for us to take a stand, this is our stand. For those of you who have asked, where is our faith? This is our expression of faith. We are putting the good of the community ahead of our enjoyment of gathering together inside, uh, inside on the weekends. For those of you who are convinced that we've give, given in to fear, let me assure you that, the, that if the leadership of the church has been motivated by fear in any way, if I was motivated by fear, we would have never suspended weekend services to begin with. But while I'm not fearful, to be honest, I am concerned. Not for our survival. My concern is that we get so focused on us and our rights and our desires that we forget about them, our family, our friends, our neighbors and our neighborhoods. And if we keep our eyes focused on what on us, we miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do what we can and what we must do for them. Our mission has never been to gather on weekends. Our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. 
and for us to get distracted by what, by what we can't do and miss out on what we can and must do to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus would be absolutely tragic. So that's the why behind our decision to suspend in-person services for so long. The next question is, why now? Our leaders and elders have taken into consideration the health risk of our local community, which is currently very, very low. Thank God. And we feel that restarting in-person gatherings at this point doesn't jeopardize the health and well-being of the people in our community. Or in other words, now is the right time. Cases are low and the people of Maine have done a great job working together to slow the spread of COVID-19. Last I checked, we were the fourth lowest rated state in terms of transmission. We feel that with precautions, we can open safely. So then what are the precautions? Well, things might not look and feel the same on the 13th when you get here. Well, we're going to come back to one service at 1030. And as more and more people feel comfortable and as the service grows, we'll go back into our regular uh, service times. There will be no children's environments. Well, one of the core values of Journey Kids is to create irresistible, safe environments. And until we're confident we can do that, we will be suspending Clubhouse and Upstreet in, in their in-person environments. Your children are welcome to sit with you and attend with you at our regular adult service. We'll also have resources available online. More on that in a moment. The week COVID hit, we were geared up to launch our middle school ministry transit. I am so pleased to say that we will be launching transit with in-person gatherings on Sunday the 13th at 10.30 a.m. Make sure your middle school kids are here. You'll notice when you come back, or when, maybe when you come for the very first time, that our rows seem smaller and they're kind of more spread out. This is to accommodate social distancing. Masks are recommended when social distancing is not possible, such as when entering, exiting, exiting or kind of moving around the building but they can be taken off when you're seated. And we know, like me, most of you don't know how to function without a good cup of coffee. So good news, we will be serving coffee with some precautions to limit the risk of transmission. Finally, on the personal side of things, I wanna suggest four new habits for you and your family during the season. The first habit is for those of you who, for good reason, have decided to continue to socially distance and view our messages online. I want you to establish a new Sunday morning routine because for most of us, oh, the old Sunday morning routine just doesn't work anymore. And I want you to establish a routine for you and your entire family. We'll begin to live stream our services on the 13th, and we want everyone to gather in the same space. So we're asking you to find the link on our website that will be live on the 13th to view our services live on YouTube. Although you might be sitting on your couch in your PJs drinking coffee, we want you to know that you matter to us. We know you are there, and we will be cha changing the way we have done things so that you can uh, more be a part of what we're doing here in person. The second habit, and this is for all of us, I want us to establish a small group routine. Again, circumstances have kind of forced most of us out of our small group habit. If you're in a group and your routine has been disrupted, I want you to take the lead and establish a new routine. Obviously, it, it can be online, and for those uh, kind of the next few months, you can even meet in a driveway or on a patio inside, but don't give up on community. It is more important now than ever. And then the third habit is this, keep your kids connected. Make sure your, your kids are, are, are connected to the local church. Get your kids online to view our weekly digital experience. And if you have middle school students, encourage them to participate in transit. They're going to love some of what we do. They won't love everything we do because, well, they're kids, right? But don't make church optional during this season. And we will do our best to make their experience exceptional. And then the last thing, and this is, this is what I, I want you to begin to do. I want you to begin to pray for your church every single day. For some of you, honestly, it has never crossed your mind to pray for your local church. 
And, and why do I want you to pray for us? Well, you know, for the reasons I've already outlined. I, I do not want us to be consumed by what we can do and miss out on what we can do and what we must do in this new season. Specifically, I want you to pray for three things. I want you to pray for innovation, influence, and impact. I, I try to make it really easy for you. Innovation, influence, and impact. Our church what was one giant innovation. I say, let's do it again. Ask God to give us more influence in our communities during this season, and as a result, greater impact. If you'll pray to that end, you'll be far more inclined to see those opportunities when they present themselves. We are all inclined to see what we are hoping for, and we are all inclined to see what we are praying for. So, so here's your takeaway from today's message. Establish a new Sunday morning routine. Establish a new small group routine, or maybe reestablish that. Keep your kids connected, and pray for your local church. I'll close with this. And I've said this so many times, you're probably sick of hearing it, but, but it is so important. Once upon a time, a handful of disorganized, socially disenfranchised, landless Jewish men and women took to the streets of Jerusalem with the most outlandish message imaginable. But if it was true, it would have been the best news imaginable. And as it turned out, it was true. And the good news changed the world. Perhaps it changed your life. It has certainly changed mine. And here we are. So come on, let's, let's do something remarkable. I am so excited about church and the opportunity to partner with you to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. Before you sign off this morning, I would love to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the, this incredible, God, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity you've given us. God, that you've given the, the, the church in, in America. God, to, to, to value those around us, to put their needs and, and their rights, God, before our own. God, to essentially fight to lose so that they can win. I pray that you would, God, help us all the time, keep our eyes off of ourselves and focused on you and on the people around us. God, and that we would love them, not just in word, but in action and in deed. I pray for all of us who may be struggling through this season, God, to, to find, to find your, your voice and your direction in this. God, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to see you in this. God, and the courage to put other people before us. Be with us, Lord, as we get closer to September 13th. Be with us. Bring us back together safely. God, let there be excitement as we continue, God, to do all that we can to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Journey Church, I love you, and there is nothing you can do about it. Can you believe we are only two weeks away from meeting in person again? I can't wait. Two more weeks. I will see you here. We'll have a cup of coffee. We'll talk, maybe through masks, maybe even at a little social distance. But I can't wait to see you. Have an incredible week. I'll see you next time.